Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip. Sometimes we encounter a text in Jewish tradition that just makes our hearts sink. How do we make sense of these texts that are embedded into our tradition, liturgy, and ritual? Today we are listening to a lecture that I gave this past summer called For Love is as Fierce as Death, Modern Women's Midrash as a Tool for Reading Our Most Difficult Texts. Let's listen in. So I'm Rabbi Avi Tillis. I am uh, VP of Strategy and Programs at Hadar. Um, and I'm, I'm really so glad to be learning with you in this seminar in particular. I'm really excited about this theme and, and you'll You'll hear some of my passion for Midrash, I think, as I teach this class. Um, and also for this class in particular, um, I, I'm, I'm getting to teach some Midrashim. I've, I haven't taught before, and I was just telling Ari also, I was scheduled to teach these Midrashim last May um, at an in-person Yom Yun that was obviously canceled. So I feel, I feel like I've been sitting, they've been sitting with me for a year now, and I'm excited to get a chance to share them with you. We are going to study two Midrashim from a collection called Dirshuni. Um, I called this class Modern Women's Midrash as a tool for reading our most difficult text. Um, so I want to start with uh, what are what are Dirshuni? Dirshuni are some of my favorite Midrashim to teach. They are it's a collection of modern Israeli women's Midrash. Um, and they combine Torah and ancient Midrash and Talmud and sometimes they also have modern themes and images um, because they were written today by modern Israeli women. Um, and they not surprisingly often uh, have explicitly feminist ideas, um, which you, you may not be surprised is something that is also exciting to me. Um, and I have to say, to be honest, these midrashim have really become a, a meaningful part of my spiritual life. They've really become very important to me. Um, so I wanna start by introducing the books themselves. Um, you actually can't, as of now, buy them in America. You have to get, if someone's going to Israel, you have to ask for them to bring you the book. This is the first edition, and this is the second edition. And we'll study one from one from each book um, today. But they are, I'm, I'm glad to say there's a collection of English translation that they're working on now that have some of each edition. So that's something that you can look forward to. Um, and the Midrashim were edited by a woman named Tamar Biala, who is also the author of the second Midrash we're going to look at today. Um, and Tamar is a phenomenal teacher. If you ever have a chance to learn with Tamar Biala, I, I definitely recommend it. Um, and I just want to start by saying that I heard Tamar say once when she was introducing these books that she started writing Midrash in order to remain religious. She grew up Orthodox in Israel, um, and that for her, she came to what was like a crisis of faith moment in her life, um, I think in particular around feminist questions. And Midrash is the tool that she discovered that allows her to, to stay in the game, right? To stay in the religion, I would say both allows her to stay inside and allows her to not feel the need to cut out the text that she finds most, um, most problematic. And I just want to quickly share the story, even though we have a lot to get through of like how these, these books came together, um, which I've heard Tamar tell, which is that she started writing Midrash as her own personal exercise. And then at some point she thought to herself, I wonder if there are other women out there writing Midrash. Like, I wonder if I could publish a collection. And this was right before you would have done this on the internet. She actually took out an ad in a newspaper, she and, and one other woman that said, you know, a call for submissions for modern Israeli women's Midrash. 
And they wondered like, would you get enough submissions to be able to publish a book? And they got over a thousand submissions, um, which they were shocked by. They had no idea that there were all these women out there writing Midrash. Um, and, and I encourage you, especially if you have facility with Hebrew to read through the Midrashim, they're very different. Some of them sound exactly like classical Midrash. I could put them in front of you. And if I didn't tell you it was from Dershuni, you would absolutely never know. Um, some, especially Tamar's usual, usual style are a little bit more like short stories or, or poetry, um, but they all draw on the, the tools of classical Midrash and on the stories of, of uh, classical stories in the Torah. Um, so the two we're gonna read today are specifically designed, not all of the Midrashim in the book do this, but the two we're gonna look at today are specifically designed to help us grapple with some of the most difficult texts. Like those moments when you are encountering a Jewish text and you just like your heart sinks. I don't know if you've had this experience, right? Either you, you are like cringing maybe at best or you're like hurt by it at worst, right? It, it can really be um, jarring. And sometimes these moments actually make you, you know, as Tamar described them, they make you almost question, you know, the holiness of, of the whole project, right? That you say like, how can this be? I don't know how to reconcile that this text is here. Um, so we're gonna look at two midrashim that reconcile with texts like that. The first midrash is, um, picks up on the story of Bat Yiftach, the daughter of Yiftach, which is from the book of Judges. I don't know if people are familiar with that story. It definitely qualifies as one of the most troubling. And the, and the midrash we're gonna look at is written by a woman named Rivka Luvich, who is, I believe, actually an activist lawyer by day. She's not, she's not a scholar by day, um, but you can sort of see the activist part of her come out in her midrash. Um, so to situate us in the story of Bat Yiftach, um, it's certainly one of the most troubling stories, although, you know, you all conjured up some very troubling stories as well. Um, Bat Yiftach, Yiftach is a general, right, in the, in the army, and he wants to win the battle, so he makes a pledge to God, if we win this battle, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house when I get home. Presumably, he's imagining that what will come out of his house when he gets home is an animal, um, and when he returns home, the first thing that emerges from his house is Bat Iftach, is his daughter, um, his only daughter, in fact, um, and in the horrific ending of this story, um, Yiftach sacrifices his daughter, right? There are so many other ways we want this story to end. And I think that the first time I was told this story as a kid, I was actually taught like, and then, and then Bat Yiftach goes off into the woods with her friends, which is what happens. And then I was just never taught the end of the story that like, oh, and he also actually sacrifices her. It was just like, oh, and, and she, you know, it's like, and the dog went to live on a farm. Like, um, I mean, it was totally sanitized the end of the story, but actually what happens in this text is that, um, is that he sacrifices his daughter, right? There are so many different ways we could end the story. We could say, well, obviously that, that vow was actually about an animal, not about a person, um, but that's not what happens in this story. It's an incredibly uh, troubling story, the story of Bat Yiftach, and that's where we're gonna pick up with uh, Rivka Luvich's Midrash. She calls this Midrash Tanot Bat Yiftach, so we'll see why. Um, she situates the Midrash on this, she brings first the starting verse. Um, she was an only child, he had no other son or daughter, right? So Bat Yiftach, she's the, she's the only child, right? When he sacrifices her, he's actually sacrificing his entire, the entire future line, right? He doesn't have any other children and she's, she doesn't have the opportunity to have any other children. Um, okay, so I'm gonna go through it and really like 
uh, look at each line to say, what is, what is she doing here in this Midrash? Um, she starts, the Shekhinah said to Bat Yiftach, right? Amrala hashchina la bat yiftach. Um, so, so already, like in this first first phrase, um, she's drawing on the shechina. The shechina is our our feminine image of God, right? So the the idea of God in many of the Dirshuni Midrashim present us with feminine God images, um, but always in like traditional language um, and methodology. So so the shechina, who is the feminine manifestation of God, um, says to bat yiftach. Um, Yiftach had no progeny from you, and on earth, they don't know that a woman has a name of her own, even without having a son or daughter. Okay, so you might assume that the problem that this Midrash would have is that uh, she is sacrificed, <laughs> but actually the problem that, that Rivka Lubitsch is picking up on first is that she doesn't have a name. She's just called the daughter of Yiftach, and that is, is unacceptable for Rivka Lovich, right? That this woman doesn't have a name and she gives this reasoning. The reason she doesn't have a name is because she doesn't have any kids, right? She says, on earth, people treat women wrong. They don't understand that women have identities and they matter, they have names, even if they don't have children, right? We put too much emphasis on, uh, like women only become real people when they become mothers. Um, and so that that because she has no children, that's why she has no name here. So that's the first, right, the problem that, that Rifka is identifying for us. And then she has this, this uh, response to it, that the Shechina says to Bat Yiftach, sit with me in the heavens, Miramim, and weep for this. I just have to say, when I say that these Midrashim, like they, they become important to my theology is, the power of an image like this, if you really slow down to read it and absorb it, uh, this is not just, you know, God is with the brokenhearted. This is not a God that comes down to sit with you when you're crying. This is actually God inviting the soul of Ba'iftach up to sit in the heavens and say, let's cry together over this. This is actually a tragedy and we need to cry together over this. Um, and then the Shechina goes one better and actually makes a corrective for this. Says it's not just, we're not just gonna cry about it. On earth, we're gonna, we're gonna fix it. We're gonna correct for it. On earth, they called you Bat Yiftach and I will call you Tanot. I'm gonna name you Tanot. Well, Tanot is not an, a name as far as we know, right? That's, that's pretty random. So this is the last verse of, these, of the story, right? After two months time, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed. She had never known a man, so it became the custom in Israel for the maidens of Israel to go every year for four days of the year and chant dirges for the daughter of Yiftach, the Gileadite. Letanot labat Yiftach. So what this means, if you translate it, right, you can see in the English, is to, to wail, to cry, to chant dirges for Bat Yiftach. But she's going to reread it here, right, midrashically reread it as letanot, to tanot, to bat yiftach, and say, no, 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 tanot doesn't mean cry. Tanot is her name. That's the name she's going to pull out of this text and reclaim. So she says, I'll call you tanot. And the reader says what we say, why is she called tanot? Because it is written. And so since long ago, the daughters of Israel go down to wail, the tanot for the daughter of yiftach, the Gileadite, four days a year. 
And they said, Tanot does not mean wailing, but it is the name of Yiftach's daughter. What does she do? She sits in the heavens, she sits Beromim, and she listens to the stories of the earthly daughters of Israel. Okay, she listens to uh, Benot Yisrael, the stories of Benot Yisrael. Um, and then she goes back and sits with the Shekhinah and bewails their sorrows in her ear and prays for them and pleads their righteousness. So there's a play on words here with um, Mitaneh also, she, that the word Tanot can mean cry, which is what it probably means in the shot of the text here, um, but it can also mean to narrate. So we flip here, first of all, it becomes her name, but in addition to becoming her name, what she does in the, in the long run is not cry. What she does in the long run is she narrates the stories of the abused or hurt Benot Yisrael, and she advocates on their behalf, exactly. She advocates on their behalf to the Shekhinah directly, right? So, so just to be clear, this word tanot is the same root as unatana tokef. Right, Unatana Tokef, which we recite on the high holidays when we have this image that there's somebody up there advocating for us. Um, and Rivka Lovich is giving us Bat Iftach as a gift, as a character, um, that this is our advocate. Bat Iftach, not only did she not die in vain, she is actually now up there listening to us and advocating for us directly. Um, and I have to say, I just read an article recently about how victims of sexual assault turn into activists and advocates for other women. Like how, how do women make that switch? And coming back from that article back to this text, it feels so relevant, right? That's what happens here. She, in the store, in the traditional story, she is completely victim. She has no name. Uh, she has basically no agency. Um, and here, she she not only has a name, but she has a job. And her job is actually to prevent the same violence that happened to her from happening to other Bano Yisrael. It's an incredibly uh, empowering and moving um, and also tragic, just tragic story, right? That like she she shouldn't have had this happen to her. Um, and now for the rest of eternity, she's gonna sit with the Shekhinah and try to figure out ways to, to, make this, to make this right. So that's our first text that I wanted to share um, as, a, as one version of how a, a modern Midrash is, is drawing on all this ancient Midrash in order to, to offer a corrective. There was an article that came out a few years ago that was like about women studying Talmud. Um, and the premise was sort of like, Talmud has is so offensive to women. Like, why do women study Talmud if it's so offensive to women? Um, you know, there's so much of Talmud that is offensive to women. Uh, and one of the most interesting responses that I that I heard from someone, I, I from uh, Rabbi Sarah Mulhern, um, who's an alum of Hadar, was um, she was sort of like, well, what's the other option? Like, do I have another option of a different wisdom tradition that's that does that isn't offensive to women? <laughs> like, is there a world that I could live in that isn't offensive? It's like, no, actually, this is the world that we live in, um, and this is our tradition, and we've inherited it, and we have the right to 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 drash it and to make the most of it. What Rivka Lubitsch has given us is is so much more than just a midrash on Bat Yiftach. Um, as I said, she's given us this character that we now get to have and use. And so Rivka Lubitsch's Midrash Tanot is in the first volume of Dershuni. And the next Midrash we're going to read is in the second volume of Dershuni. And it is one of several of the authors from Dershuni who wrote Midrashim using the character of Tanot. 
Tanu, the character that she invents in her Midrash is now going to show up in other Midrashim, which is, of course, how Midrash works, right? It's, it's a snowball effect um, that later Midrash involve images from earlier Midrash. And the same now gets to happen with uh, with Mumin Midrash, which is an amazing thing to say, like, we don't just have a generation of Yerushuni, we have you now two generations of Yerushuni, um, you know, and, and it, can, it can grow from here. Um, which is sort of, it's an amazing thing to to think about and also to say like, yeah, actually there was so much agency in the Tanot Midrash. Um, it became real. That Tanot really became a character. Um, so the second Midrash we're going to look at is from Tamar Biala, um, who again, I said, is the editor of the of the book. She is going to respond to this piece of Yechezkel that she finds problematic. And I just want to say by way of introduction to this piece of Yechezkel that I find this piece of Yechezkel so problematic. Um, and it's I've come to discover, as I talk about it with other people, with other colleagues, with other women, rabbi, feminist colleagues, that not everybody has the same response to this Yechezkel that I do. Not everyone reads it as so offensive and so problematic. So I just want to make space for like, if you're a person who doesn't find, you know, if this text isn't on your list of most problematic, you are in good company. There are many people who don't find it problematic. Um, but Tamar Biala definitely reads it the way I read it. She finds it really offensive. Um, so this piece of Yechezkel is coming to give us a metaphor, a long drawn out metaphor for the relationship of covenant between God and, and Israel. Um, and it starts with, I'm sort of going to like just jump around and not really read it inside, but it, it starts with, um, the name of the book is Dear Shuni. It starts with um, God finding, the, the God is the male here, finding a baby that has been uncared for with these really graphic images of what does it mean for a baby to be uncared for. Um, and God cares for the baby. And then we get this sort of like jarring switch where it says, you were still naked and bare. When I passed by you and saw that your time for love had arrived, I spread my robe over you and covered your nakedness. And I entered into covenant with you by oath, declares the Lord, thus you became mine. Um, so it's like this baby comes to the age of maturity. And then the relationship switches to a, a love covenant relationship, lover relationship, although it is a very dominating one, right? You are mine. I like took you for my own. Um, and then we get a little bit of like love imagery. And then later on, we're going to hear the part of the story where Israel worships other gods and hurts God. And that story will be represented as like, you are the lover who poured yourself out and I punished you, right? I sent these other nations to punish you. Um, you know, uh, it's, there's a, there's feels like a lot of sort of like domestic violence. You are a whore and I'm going to hurt you. I find this text incredibly painful to read. Um, and you'll see, if you look down on the handout, we don't need to read it inside. I just wanted to sort of name when we say like, oh, well, sometimes, sometimes the thing to do with a problematic text is like, don't spend too much time on it. Don't spend so much of your life worrying about a random piece of Yechazkel Avi. Like it just doesn't matter, right? This story is referenced and quoted in the Haggadah and in the bris ceremony. And so I have this visceral negative response to this text and I have it every time I'm leading a Seder. <laughs> And I have it every time I'm standing at a, at, a, at a bris and I hear this phrase. I just wanted to bring those to highlight that, um, that we don't always have the luxury of just skipping over the difficult text. Um, and also that, that it's not so easy to say like, 
well, I just reject that story. That's not the metaphor that works for me um, because when they're already baked into our liturgy, uh, they are actually baked into the way we live our Jewish lives. Like brises and, and Passover seders are my favorite. <laughs> like those are the best Jewish rituals. Um, and so I have to figure out how to reconcile my favorite Jewish rituals that also have this really, um, this really problematic, um, this really problematic metaphor at the at the core. Okay, so Tamar, I just think Tamar is brilliant. She's a brilliant reader of text. She is going to base her midrash. She's going to root it in not only the texts of Yechezkel, of Ezekiel, and Song of Songs, and Shir Hashirim, um, but also in these two pieces of of Midrash, ancient Midrash. So one is from the Talmud in Chagiga, and the second is from Mishnah in Yadayim. So I'm gonna read them, we'll just talk about what they mean. I think the premise you wanna have in your mind is that there is discussion in the Talmud about how did the books of the Tanakh get codified, right? Like why, do so, why are some books in the Tanakh and some books not in the Tanakh? How did that happen? How did the Bible how did books make it into the Bible? That's a discussion that comes up periodically throughout the Talmud. Um, so here's a piece of that discussion in Hagiga. Um, Rabbi Yehuda said, yet let us fondly remember that man, which man, and Hanina ben Chizkiah was his name. Um, if not for him, the book of Ezekiel would have been hidden away for it contradicted things in the Torah. Okay, what's the problem with Yechezkel? Hagiga is telling us there are parts of Yechezkel that actually contradict the Torah. Now, if you are a student of Bible, you will discover that there are many parts of Tanakh, some that retell stories from the Torah and they retell them differently, or they have a law, but it's slightly different law than the one that came in the Torah. So this is something that happens. There are parts of books of Tanakh that contradict the Torah. Um, but this, we're bringing it about Yechezkel here. Um, so what did he do? How did he save it? This is the guy that saved it. Um, they brought him 300 kegs of oil and he sat in an attic and searched it with Midrash, um, the, the deer shoe. This, I think it's, it's really, this is, the, this is the like Talmudic way of sharing um, the same sentiment that I said at the beginning in the name of Tamar Biala, right? That sometimes in order to keep a text in the canon, you have to have Midrash. Right? This is not a modern idea that Tamar invented. This is in the Chagiga, in our Talmud, that we say sometimes when a text is problematic, it contradicts something else that we hold dear, um, Midrash is a way to solve that problem. Um, so presumably here, uh, 300 kegs of oil is meant to indicate he had to stay up night upon night uh, working through the night to, to write this Midrash to solve this problem. Right? It took 300 kegs of oil. Second Midrash she brings us from Mishnah Yadayim. Rabbi Akiva says, God forbid, not a single Israelite ever disagreed and said that the Song of Songs does not render one's hands impure. Okay, so render one's hands impure is code for, is it a holy book? Is it part of the Tanakh? Because books that are part of the Tanakh render your hands impure and books that are not don't. If, you, if that doesn't mean anything to you, don't worry about it. That's not really the point. The point here that I want to make is there is a discussion in the Talmud, in the Mishnah, of whether or not Shir Hashirim should be a book, a book of the Tanakh, right? It's very sexy, Shir Hashirim. It doesn't read like a book of Torah. Um, how did this book make it in? Um, and Rabbi Akiva is the advocate for this book. Um, and Rabbi Akiva says, 
Nobody ever disagreed for all of eternity in its entirety is not as worthy as the day on which Song of Songs, Shira Shirim was given to Israel for all the scriptures are holy and Shir Hashirim is the Kodesh Kodoshim. It's the Holy of Holies, right? Not only is it holy book, it is the holiest book. Rabbi Akiva, he loves love. He also loves Shir Hashirim. And um, those, are, those are the two starting places here. Um, okay, now we're ready to dive in. Here's where Tamar's Midrash picks up. And she picks up with Tanot, who we know from our previous Midrash, right? Um, if you don't know the previous Midrash and you read this, then you have to say Tanot. Don't know what that means. You can still understand the rest of the Midrash, but hopefully it will send you back to the other Midrash and you will and you'll get to learn that character also. Tanot sits with the Shechina and she, she sort of works things out. She is the lawyer after all. So she says to the Shechina, what did Yechezkel say that contradicted the Torah, right? So Tanot is like, she's reading the Chagiga text. It says, Yechezkel contradicted the Torah. And, and Tanot says, what, what was so bad in Yechezkel that it contradicted the Torah? And the Shechina answers. And you can hear Tamar's voice and you can hear my voice in the answer, right? He did not fulfill, be loving to your neighbor like yourself, which is like treat people well. For when he wanted to tell Israel how God chose them for a people and how they betrayed him and to comfort them, that terrible things would befall them one day out of the blue, and they will again be loved by him. He told them all this through a parable, and that parable, it was cruel, and it humiliated the women of the world, okay? So the problem here that we are going to address is that the Yechezkel text is offensive and humiliating to women. For me, like, I when this text comes up in, in the Haggadah on Pesach and I'm the rabbi and I'm the one leading the Seder and you're going around and someone's reading and they get to this text, like I feel a little bit of that feeling of humiliation. Like it, it's, you know, it sounds like it can be an abstract, it's an abstract idea that this text is offensive to women in the abstract, but like as an actual person, I find this text problematic. I feel this. Um, and so I'm so like personally grateful for this Midrash that she wrote this Midrash because I was like, yes, this, I needed this. I needed an answer to this. I didn't have an answer to how to, how to read this text. Okay, so, so we're gonna get one more paragraph of setup here. So Tanot says, okay, got it. We understand, we understand the problem, but what were the 300 kegs of oil that they brought up to him to Hanina ben Chizkiah that he would interpret Yechezkel? It's like, okay, he kept Yechezkel in with 300 kegs of oil. What does that mean? And the Shechina answers, they brought him Shir Hashirim. They brought him Song of Songs. As it is written, your ointment sells, smells sweet. Your name is like finest oil. That is why the maidens love you. Okay, so the oil here in this read is not oil in a lamp that keeps you up so you can write Midrash. The oil is Shir Hashirim. And what Tamar is going to do in the rest of the Midrash is offer us a model of how to use one text of Tanakh to read another text of Tanakh. So the rest of the Midrash, like the bulk of the, the heart of this Midrash has almost no, none of her own words. She's literally just gonna go verse for verse, bring us a problematic piece of Yechezkel and bring us a corrective from Shir Hashirin, that she's making the argument for us that you can actually use part of Tanakh to read it against another part and you can have a healing effect on, on the pain and the harm from the first piece. It's to me a profoundly, again, she's doing the work for us on this 
piece of text. Um, and for that, I am grateful. But she is also offering us a model of like how you could do this, right? We started off with, I said, what are the texts that are problematic for you? Is like, you now can take her model and you can go and find the corrective text and put those texts next to each other um, and, and use this same technique. Okay. And, and of course, there's there's a lot of uh, oil. Here's a, an oil quote from Shira Shirim. So that's how she's going to make this play, that Shira Shirim is actually the oil itself. Okay. So we're going to get the same design in each paragraph. Again, if you're a student of Midrash, it's the most satisfying and gratifying thing when you get a pattern like this and you understand how you're supposed to be reading your Midrash. Um, so Tanot asked, um, how can one interpret Yechezkel with Shira Shirim? What does that even mean? And here's the answer. The Shechina answered, Yechezkel said, and here's the first quote, you were still naked and bare when I passed by you and saw that your time for love had arrived. So I spread my robe over you and covered your nudity. And I swore my co a covenant to you, declares the Lord. And so you were mine. Right? That was the piece I read also when I was like, let me find something offensive here. Um, comes Shir Hashirim and says, let's rise early to the vineyards. We'll see if the vineyard has flowered and if the pomegranates have bloomed. There, I'll give my love to you. So why is this a parallel text? I'll say that there's sort of two things here, I think, that make it, make it par parallel and corrective. The first is, uh, I saw that your time for love had arrived, right? We see that image picked up in the Shira Shirim quote of like the, the, the vine has flowered. This is, this is like the time for maturity, the time for love is there. Um, but in the Yechezkel, you were mine, right? In the Yechezkel, the male uh, takes the female, and in the Shir Hashirim, the male gives himself to the female, right? That love is a giving of yourself as opposed to a taking of somebody else. So it is a, it is like an exact inverse. This is the corrective. This is the tikkun. Um, the tikkun for the violence in the Echazkel of I took is the reverse image that we find in the Shirim of Shir Hashirim of I gave. So let's do another one. Um, let me scroll down our, a little bit. Yechezkel said, like a mother, like daughter, you are your mother's daughter, she who rejected her man and her children. Again, I just find this line so, so hard, right? It is literally, um, you know, your mother was a whore and you're a whore just like her. It's like, it's the most uh, negative. It had like, you can, I, I mean, I don't know how people will feel about my saying, it's like, you can feel the misogyny of like, oh, women, you know, you're just like your mother. And here's the corrective from Shira Shirim. Till I brought him to my mother's house, to the chamber of she who conceived me, I would lead you, I would bring you to my mother's house. Under the apple tree, I roused you. It was there your mother conceived you. Tamar Biala, in the voice of the Shechina, in the voice of uh, you know the, the rabbi in the Chagiga Midrash, finds the corrective verses, goes to Shira Shirim and says, there are verses wherein your association with your mother are what make you beautiful. They are what make you appealing. They are what make you wonderful. They are images wherein being your mother's daughter is a compliment. And though we can read these texts directly next to the Yechezkel and they can be a corrective to the negative mother imagery. The next one is great. I think it's one of the most clear. Yechezkel says, I clothed you wound fine linen about your head and dressed you in silks, right? You came of age and I covered you up. Um, it's like women's modesty is needed. Um, comes to your Hashirim and says, let me see your face. Turn back, turn back that we may gaze upon you. 
women should be covered or women should be seen. I want to see your face directly. I want you to show yourself to the world. Um, gazing upon you becomes a good thing as opposed to the only way to protect women in the world is to, is to cover them up. So we get a covering verse um, corrected with an uncovering verse. Okay, we'll do, we'll do the next one. I just think Tamar is such a brilliant reader of text. Yechazkel said, uh, and you will be too ashamed to open your mouth again, right? Yechazkel says, shut up. I will shame you into silence. Comes Shir Hashirim and says, oh, you who linger in the garden, a lover is listening. Let me hear your voice, right? Hashmi'ini et kolech. I want to hear you speak. Women should speak. Speak up. Um, it's, a, it's the corrective of the shut up verse from Yechazkel. Yechezkel said, oh, this is, the, this is the abusive part, right? Now I will raise my arm against you and give you over to your enemies. I will direct bloody and passionate fury against you. I will deliver you into their hands and they will tear down and level and strip you and take and gather a mob and pelt you with stones and pierce you with their swords and punish you. This is the image of, of a god uh, who has been betrayed, who is sending other nations to fight. Um, but, but the Yechezkel presents it still within the metaphor, right? We're still in the marriage metaphor. So we are given this like violent male lover who attacks physically. And here's our Shira Shireen corrective. A king is held captive in the tresses and says, let me be a seal upon your hand. Um, if you read the context around, I just I couldn't bring everything, but if you read the context around these Shira Shireen, it's like the women's body is a fortress. So whereas in the first one, like she is just victim of violence, the image is flipped here. The king is held captive in her hair, right? Is like, she is now the one in control. She is strong, she is protected. And let, let, let me be a seal upon your hand, right? That in the, in the Yechezkel, it's the arm coming against her. Um, and in the Shir Hashirim, she is the one who has the arm, actually. It's like, it's her strength. These texts right now are only in Hebrew. I have some translations, so you can email me if you're interested in translations, but, um, but they are, as I said, publishing a, a translated version of Dear Shumi. Um, okay, Yechezkel said, confident in your beauty and fame, you played the whore, pretty extreme, right? Uh, comes Shir Hashirim and says, if you don't know, O fairest woman, go out and added, arise, my darling, my fair one, come away. So you have to know, I think, a little bit to understand this, that the rabbis pick up on any story that says a woman went out. They read it as like, went out to whore herself. Um, the like Rashi and the Midrashim on the story of Dina, that like we might teach as the rape of Dina, Rashi says, oh, well, Dina went out. Um, that, in, that story actually also has the image of just like her mother. It's like, oh, just like Leah, women are just bad. Um, but the image of like women went out is ten, tends to be read as like women went out to, like women shouldn't be out. They shouldn't be in the street. They should be at home. Um, and the Shira Shirim is the corrective for here, saying to the woman, you should go out. You should come away. You don't have to stay locked up inside. Okay, one more. Yechezkel said, I will establish my covenant with you and your beauty won you fame amongst the nations perfected through the splendor which I bestowed upon you, declares the Lord. Again, I made my covenant with you. It's a very one-sided, right? God chose Israel and that's that. And Shira Shirim says, 
oh, that you were my brother, I, which I, is kind of a weird sentence. <laughs> In the Shirashirim, it's like, then I could touch you because we'd be related, but also then we'd be related. So it's a little bit of a weird image, but also um, we get, and my beloved is mine and I and I am his, right? Ani ladodi vadodi lo, or vani lo. Um, this is a phrase that we use in modern weddings, right? We like it. It's mutual love here. And it feels so different than the Yechezkel, which is the one-sided. I chose you and that's that. The Shir Hashirim offers us something that is mutual. I'm yours and you're mine. We're, we're in this together. It's a different image of love. The ending. And so it was that the Shechina said to Tanot, draw me, so the, so the Shechina is now going to explain to Tanot, draw me after you, Narutsu, let's run. This is a quote from Shir Hashirim. Narutsu is like rats, if you know modern Hebrew, is run. Um, don't read it as Narutsu, but rather as Nirtse, let's desire. For there is no love where there is no will, and there is no faithfulness where there is no trust. And all the scriptures are holy, and Shira Shirim is the holy of holies. This is what I think she's saying here, right? Narutsu, let's run, let's read it as no desire. That desire is what's missing from the, from the Yechezkel text. And I think that there is no love where there is no will, will as in desire. I, I, I almost think we could read this in like Me Too language as like, there is no love where there, there is no love or sex where there is no consent. Um, that what's happening, like, you know, when you say like, what is sexual violence? Is it, is it sex or is it violence? Um, it's like, no, actually sexual violence is violence. And that um, we need this other model that, that Shira Shireem shows us actually like what sex is meant to be um, and what love is meant to be is actually something mutual, a mutual desire. Um, and that's not the image that we get in, in the Yechezkel. Um, and, and that the, when you do get that image, when you do get that mutual, Kodesh Kodeshim, that's the Holy of Holies, that's, that's the best. And I think that one of the things she's offering us here, I think one of, the, one of the things that can happen, certainly to women who are victims of sexual violence, but I would argue even just to women who are like witnesses to other sexual violence, right? And, and reading the Ezekiel can put you in that position almost that you feel as though you are a witness um, is that it can sometimes actually take away the possibility of, of loving sexual encounters and, and loving encounters um, is that you feel so disturbed and hurt um, by these other images that you lose sight of the fact that sex can actually be mutual and healing and loving. And that what she's offering us here is to say like, you know, why is Shira Shireen the Holy of Holies is like, it actually has the ability to offer us, you know, a, not just another model, but a corrective model where we can make the statement at the end and we can have the Shekhinah saying, actually, that's not what love is. Love is this other image. Love is the Shira Shireen image. Love is the, the mutual desire. This is such an, a powerful read of, of what Shira Shireen can be. Um, you know, I was studying this text with a Chavruta who was like, I don't love all the images in Shira Shireen either. <laughs> I might sometimes need some corrective for those images. Um, but that what she's doing here is really pulling that as, as the positive text and giving us a way to read those together. And in the language of the Chagiga, like that's what allows Yechezkel to stay in the Tanah.
in the Tanakh. And in the language of Tamar, like that's what allows me to, to sit at the bris and smile and celebrate. And that, that's what can allow me to sit at the table at Pesach is to say like, there are other images here. This isn't my only God option. Um, and if I step back even, I would say, um, I think that's what Dershuni can be also. Dershuni as this modern women's midrash, um, who was saying this, uh, Rabbi Sharon, having these women's voices can actually offer us alternative images of God. Um, and that is that can be extremely powerful and pervasive and actually impact our entire relationship to religion. Um, and, and I sort of want to say, like, in, in the most grandiose of terms, like Midrash is, that's the power of Midrash and nothing less, actually. That's what Midrash can do. And that's, that's why it matters so much and so much to me. It's a totally different thing if I say, God gave you this Torah and it's yours to grapple with. Then if I say, God gave us this Torah and it's God's to grapple with right? That like God and Tanot are up there, like in the divine Beit Midrash, having this conversation. Um, that, that makes me so much less alone in terms of like, who's the God that I'm praying to? I'm not praying just to the God of this image, but the, I'm praying to the God of this image and the God that is grappling with this image simultaneously. It's a strange piece. I tried to do some research on it. Actually, I, I turned to Ellie Comfer, who's our liturgy expert at Hadar. Um, the quote actually in the Haggadah has like verse seven and then verse six of, of Yechezkel. And like, I find verse six more problematic than verse seven. So I was like, why is it in here at all? And the answer actually that he gave me is that it's a very late addition. Earlier manuscripts actually don't have it. There's this moment where it's there. Um, it's not one of the more ancient ones. And, and to me, that was all the more frustrating. I was like, really? This is what we had to go and add. Um, and most of the Midrashim there are drawn from Shmot. They're very obvious verses. They're trying to make a pun on Rabu on like there were many and multitudes. And so it, it draws on this text from Ezekiel. But to me, I'm like, just leave it out. Josh Culp also writes about why this image, this Midrash comes up in Pesach in the bris ceremony because it is a blood image. The baby is covered in blood and the Pesach ritual and the bris ritual are our blood ritual. So that's when we turn to this text to say, Blood covenant. Oh, I have a text about blood covenant. It's this, it's this Yehezkel text about blood covenant. But it's also so interesting, right? Because it's like a women, a woman blood image versus bris, which is a male blood image. You know, there's there's a lot there. But that's sort of that that was his understanding, which was helpful to me of why does this Yehezkel show up in those two two services? The most of them of Midrash Shir Hashirim, like the Midrash on Shir Hashirim Rabbah, they're like, why do we have this? biblical story about sex it's not really about sex it's really about god and it goes verse by verse and tries to show you like how each verse is actually about a metaphor it's all just a metaphor that that's what most of that of the um, midrash rabbah on shirashirim is actually trying to do is to say it's not it's not about sex it's about god um and it's almost like that's it's almost the inverse of what tamar biala does here which is she says no 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 what's problematic is the relationship with god and i can like correct it <laughs> By, by making it, reading it actually as a text about love and sex, um, which is sort of the inverse of what the rabbis have given us um, in, in Midrash Rabbah, which is like, no, it's, it's not about sex, it's about God, um, but, but it is about both. Thank you all so much. As I said from the beginning, Birshini is my favorite, these are my favorite texts to teach. Um, because they are not modern texts, right? When you teach Dershuni, you're teaching Tanakh and you're teaching 
Torah and you're teaching Gemara and you're teaching Midrash. Um, and she really allows all of these things to come together. And also you're teaching, you know, modern feminist philosophy and morality and, and, and that's an incredible tool um, to bring all of this together. So I hope you all get a chance to encounter it again. Um, if you keep an eye out, I'm, I'm always teaching Dershuni, so you can always find, find more classes at Adar um, on these topics. And, and I wish you the beautiful learning in the rest of your day. This episode of Tashma was produced by Jeremy Tabak and edited by Evan Feist. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It has been a pleasure to learn with you.